Thank you for listening to this podcast that is part of an ESG knowledge session brought to you by Fonts News and Investment Officer. The session is dedicated to the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, where world leaders will meet to find ways to combat further global warming. My name is Marije Groen and welcome. In today's episode, the current food chain is extremely carbon intensive, but above all, completely unsustainable. And if we continue like this, there will be a 70% water and food shortage by 2050. Investing in a sustainable, clean food chain is necessary and offers investors an existential opportunity. So says my guest of today, Yashika Reddy. Yashika is Investment Director Global Resource Equities at Schroeders. And together we'll talk about the causes of the status of the global food chain and the opportunities arising from investing in a sustainable food chain. Welcome, Jashika. Thank you, Mariah. Really excited to be here. Thank you. It's so wonderful to have you. Um, as a first question, maybe a bit of a cheeky one, but do you think that we have to say goodbye to our burgers to save the planet? What would you say? <laughs> that is indeed a cheeky question. And I don't think quite yet, uh, but I think as long as we can sort of enjoy that in moderation, I think we'll still be all right. Okay. Moderation is the key word here. It is the key word. Now, according to OECD data, we'll have a food and water shortage, like I said, by 2050, if we don't act now. That, that sounds really pretty serious. Can you explain to us what that shortage uh, means and also how it's going to affect all the economies of the food supply? Such a valid question, Mariah. And I think it is a very topical topic and, and one that we need to increasingly focus on. You know, when you think about our food and water system, we are currently experiencing an unprecedented confluence of pressures. And this is only going to accelerate over the next 10, 20, 30 years. You have to look at it, you know, uh, from two sides. One on the demand side, you obviously have global population, which is increasing. You've got 7 billion people today. That's going to grow to about 8 billion uh, by 2030. And that's going to grow to 10 billion by 2050. So as the population starts to grow, uh, people become wealthier. You're going to have a huge demand for a more varied diet, um, a more high quality diet. And it's going to place a huge amount of strain on uh, global resources. But at the same time, we also have to think about it from uh, a supply perspective. Uh, you're going to see massive amount of pressure on fresh water, on arable land, uh, natural resources, and you're increasingly seeing these El Nino effects, unpredictable weather patterns. And that, again, is being increasingly becoming more and more apparent. So if we had to put it very, very simply, our current food and water system is absolutely not sustainable. And in order to provide food security, um, for the entire world and a population of 10 billion, we basically have to produce uh, in numbers 70% more food and water. We're going to have to reduce our carbon emissions by two thirds by 2050 from 2010 levels. And we're going to have to do all of this while using 70% less resource. So we have a massive challenge ahead of us. But I think with every challenge, um, there is an opportunity. That is the bright side, right? Um, in his book, The Omniverse Dilemma, Michael Pollan writes that 
things went south, so to speak, after the Second World War. Can you explain, and probably just in a high over uh, level, what has changed in the way that we produce food since the 1950s? And, and how is that related to the current problems that you see? Yeah, I think interesting book. And I think he's also written another book called A Defense of Food. And I'll I'll touch on, on uh, the key points from both books. But I think really important for us to take a step back in time and to see how we got ourselves into this conundrum in the first place. So effectively, in the early 1900s, so the very early 1900s, half of Americans were either farmers or they lived in rural communities. And a lot of these U.S. farms were... Um, very diversified. So they, they, they produced a lot of different crops, lots of different animal species, and they were very complementary in many ways. So farmers had lots of different skills. Um, they had a lot of autonomy on how they would manage their crops, they, how they would manage their animals. But I think a lot has changed. You know, the, con these conditions still exist today, but we've seen a massive amount of industri industrialization in agriculture. It's radically transformed how um, the vast majority of food is produced, not just in the US, but around the world. So... <clears throat> In a very short space of time, and I say very short because this has primarily happened in the 20th century, right? Um, we've, we've been adopting agricultural practices for the last 13,000 years or so. Um, but this massive change we've seen has happened mostly in the 20th century. So we've gone from having a lot of diversity to essentially having monoculture enterprises, uh, which is not very healthy. And I think he gives this really good example in the book um, about corn um, and, and how, you know, U.S. policies have basically uh, bent in the service of this one single crop. So um, I think that's a really interesting example. Um, and the other stat that comes to mind, you know, which sort of blew my mind, really, half of all the crop production comes from four species and 70% come from 10 species. So this has a huge impact, not just on biodiversity, diversity, but also our own food security. Uh, we're seeing extinct, extinction, which is now happening up to 100 times faster than the natural evolutionary rate. So it's impoverishing soil. Uh, we're seeing loss of insects. Um, it's threatening the pollination of crops. It's jeopardizing the health of our cattle. So all of these things sort of need to be addressed. So interestingly, in his book called uh, Defense of Food, he makes rather three very simple uh, suggestions. And they are basically eat food, uh, not too much, as I said um, uh, previously, and and also to have a more plant-based um, diet. So I think um, really interesting books and a lot of insight there. Mm. And also the, the, the numbers that you're pointing out illustrate it so much more, right? Because we know all this, but but when you put the figures to it, it's, it gets more clear, yes. even more clear. Uh, now, a part of the solution, uh, talking about what you just said, a part of the solution that you suggest is higher efficiency in, in crop uh, production. How can higher efficiency be combined with enhancing biodiversity and also lowering waste and, and pollution? I think quite a tough one. And I think improving yields is is absolutely critical. Um, if you look at the current trajectories of yield improvements, 
we would basically need to increase our land use by about 600 million hectares by 2050. What does that mean? It's twice the size of India, to put that in perspective, to basically feed that population. So obviously technology will be a key enabler here. We already have a lot of these technologies as well. Um, and, and we recognize that there'll be lots of innovation in this space. Uh, but the key point here is we need to see mass adoption. So we're seeing these technologies being adopted at the periphery, but not really mass adoption. So even in the most developed agricultural markets, and, and I use the US because it's one of the most developed agricultural markets, the adoption rates are like for precision agriculture, for example, they're like 60%. So it's thinking about companies uh, that are in the agricultural equipment space that are um, allowing for more precise application of agricultural inputs, whether that be pesticides, whether that be fertilizers. Um, it's thinking about companies that are developing biological pest controls, targeted input uh, for specific uh, pests. Um, it's thinking about precise harvesting, uh, planting techniques that enhance uh, and and hedgerow and, and, and cover crop biodiversity. But it's also thinking about vertical stacked farming that uses a lot less land, increases yield, uh, food technology companies that are creating um, alternative proteins, reducing the need for cattle. So there are lots and lots of examples that I could give you here. And the list can be endless. Uh, but basically, what we need to see is is mass adoption. And we need to see a continual evolution of those technologies. Hmm. So, so one part is that efficiency, but you already mentioned already uh, a second part of the solution is just changing our behaviors as as consumers. Uh, so more specifically, our, our eating, pattern, uh, eating pattern, basically. So what should we change and why do you believe, because we all know uh, smoking, fast food are unhealthy habits, but still very popular. Uh, do you think this can be done? Do you think people will actually be able to change their behaviors? Oh, God, I, I, I don't know. I think this is the hard one. I mean, just when I think about changing my own habits and I realize how difficult it is, um, I, I do imagine that changing consumer behavior can take a while. It's not something that'll happen overnight. Uh, and we're very far away from eating well globally. Um, we are overindulging in a lot of processed meats, red meats, and we are under consuming vegetables and fruits and whole grains and nuts. But everybody knows that. And, mm. and when you look at the um, high income North American consumer, on average, they would consume 11 times more the amount of red meat that then that would be considered suboptimal. So that is quite scary, isn't it? When you look at it yeah. as a stat. Yeah. So there's a huge mismatch in our diets. And uh, but I also think, you know, I think uh, people are becoming more conscious of how they consume. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, veggie restaurants and shops open up just here in London, where I live. Um, so that's been really interesting. Uh, we've seen a lot of my friends and my family go go vegetarian or vegan. Uh, you know, so I do feel consumer preferences are changing. You've seen the dairy uh, milk alternative market has grown about uh, tenfold in the in in the last few years, uh, and I think the alternative protein market will see even greater disruption uh, over the next few years. So I think um, this is not something that will happen overnight. Um, it might take a few years, 
but I think we're certainly moving in the right direction, uh, and and right. so we can still remain. Momentum a bit seems more to be there, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. remain hopeful. That's a fir- that's a first step, at least, at least. And and I agree with you. If you can go to a vegetarian or vegan restaurant and you have delicious food, you don't even need the meat anymore. But I think that exactly. was long lacking. So so it's it's good that you know culinary experience is catching up as well in terms of plant based diets. Um, uh, at Schroeder's, you expect governments to to play a key role in, in sustaining the food chain. Why would you say is that good news for investors? I do think policy environment is a key enabler of change. And we've seen a huge amount of transformation in the last few years. Uh, we've seen, obviously, the Paris Agreement in 2015. We've got the COP26 coming up. That's really galvanizing the policy momentum. And we've got global buy-in and net zero targets that countries must meet. Uh, and they cannot achieve those targets without looking at the food and water system. Because if you look at the food and water system, it currently contributes to 26% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So you cannot become carbon neutral without addressing the food and water system. And I do think legislation can create really meaningful penalties for carbon emissions. It can provide incentives for alternatives. Uh, We've seen such a massive growth in the emission trading scheme. And I think that's a really good example in the EU. Uh, Stark contrast uh, to carbon prices in 2010, uh, for example. Uh, Equally, You've seen subsidies play a crucial role in the development, for example, of re- energy markets, of renewable energy. Um, and it's been very important to incentivize the renewable energy sector over the last uh, 10 years. So the interplay between policy design and and market forces are are crucial, but public funds alone cannot close this gap. You also need private investment. And that is where there's a huge opportunity for investors. Hmm. So let's talk a bit more about how this all translates indeed into the uh, investing in general, Um, because your universe for investing is, say, approximately... 2,000 stocks, while your investable universe is maybe 170 stocks. And your portfolio then is between 35 and 60 stocks. So could you tell us and and take us through the selection process that you apply? Yes, our investable universe is is really, really broad. So we start off with 10,000 companies and then we're looking for companies which have that broad exposure to the food and water space. But we want to be a pure play fund. And so we don't want to be investing in companies that have less than 50% revenue to um, food and water activities. So we apply our pure play screen, which brings us to about 220 companies. But then we also do a manual check And you might also find certain companies that don't quite meet that 50% threshold, but that have a dominant technology in quite a nascent industry or sector, uh, or that are doing something quite differentiated to address the sustainability challenges of our time. Because it's a lot more than just emissions. It's, it's, It's thinking about biodiversity loss and how can we address that and how can we address pollution and waste we're emitting a huge amount of waste um, every year um, and we also need to think about our water usage and also diet related health so it is just looking at companies that are enabling that change uh, which brings us to an investable universe of 170 stocks now we launched the fund yesterday 
and it's 170 stocks. But this number will grow through time as companies transition to become um, enablers uh, of the more sustainable food and water value chain. And we invest across the entire food and water hmm. uh, value chain. Hmm. And and tell me, how, how do you then make sure that the companies that you invest in really have that positive impact on sustaining the food chain? How How do you ensure that? Thank you, Maria. I, I think this is a very valid question, you know, because we can't just rely on metrics, for example, to measure uh, whether a company is impactful from a biodiversity standpoint. So we did a lot of pre-development work before we launched the strategy. We spent about two years modeling out these 170 names. And we have sustainability rationales, which are very, very detailed. And we classify companies as either lagging or neutral or best in class. And we don't invest in lagging companies. We have a bias towards best in class. And how do we do that? We make sure that every single company in that universe, and that's why it's so small, it's only got 170 names uh, at this point in time, are aligned with solving at least one of those five sustainability criteria, whether it's greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's biodiversity, pollution and waste, water usage, or health and nutrition. So unless they're solving any one of these, unless they are aligned to certain SDGs, we will not be investing in those funds, in those Clear. companies. Can, can you tell us what is Sustainex? I hope I pronounce that correctly, Sustainex, and, and how do you use it? You absolutely pronounce that uh, perfectly, Mariah. So it is called Sustainex. Uh, our sustainability team, uh, we have a really strong sustainability team here at Schroders. We have about 23 people. And what they've been doing over the last few years is been developing a toolkit. Uh, and they've been investing a lot of time to develop tools that provide us with information as investors that we need to make better investment decisions, especially from a sustainability standpoint. So what Sustainex does is it essentially provides a snapshot of a company at one point in time in terms of whether um, a company is providing a positive contribution or a net negative contribution to society. Now, why is that important? When we look at these th things through a really hard economic lens and when we try and quantify it, it becomes something we can use to compare companies to uh, peers um, or sectors or industries, and we can assess its impact through different lenses, whether that be the ESOG perspective or the SDG perspective. And it can really help us understand um, where the risks are and the sources of those risks. What it does not tell us, however, is how to manage those risks. So we're not viewing this as a universal answer. We'll take this analysis and we'll use this to engage with companies and have conversations with them uh, to basically help improve their sustainability practices. Hmm. Now, you are overweighted in large cap stocks. Uh, tell me, what is your, your reasoning to do so? I think a good question. Um, we we do have a skew towards large cap. If you look at our universe, about 48% um, 
exposure is towards large cap or companies with a market cap above 5 billion. But we certainly have a lot of exposure to mid cap and small cap names as well. And that's because I think the food and water system, uh, the companies operating within the food and water sector uh, are, are well-developed companies and they're well-capitalized companies. They're the old, boring giants who are doing interesting things, um, who will see an uptick in growth. Uh, and and so you will have new entrants and you will have um, interesting companies emerge from the private space to the public space. But there are a lot of companies um, that have been operating for many, many years that are transitioning fully to becoming more sustainable in terms of their business practices, in terms of solving uh, some of our biggest sustainability challenges. Uh, and, and that is pretty much uh, captured uh, in the market capitalization spread of our universe. Thank you, Yashika. We're reaching the end of this interview already. Um, maybe as a, as a final question, just wondering, as a consumer, uh, would you have any tips on, on what we can contribute as consumers to, to reaching that more sustainable economy that we've been, been talking about? I think it's very simple changes that we can make. You know, people always feel that maybe they cannot contribute in a big way. And so um, people tend not to try at all in the first place. But I think it's just little changes that you can make that can have a huge impact. Maybe it's just uh, cutting down um, on, on your meat consumption just maybe having meat uh, once less than you used to, for example, uh, or maybe just using recyclable bags or cloth bags uh, for your for your shopping so you don't contribute to waste. But it's also thinking about simple things like food waste. A lot of the food that goes into our homes end up uh, getting wasted because we haven't consumed um, that food. And so it's just thinking about our consumption and literally buying what we need or what we'll end up eating rather than just buying or having a fridge full of food that is never actually consumed. So it's just little things. And I'm trying to incorporate these um, in my own life. Uh, and uh, it's suffice to say that it is it is a challenge. It is a challenge making those changes on a consistent basis and sticking to them. Uh, but I think we all need to make those changes. And, and we'll get there step by step. <laughs> Thank you so much for this very inspirational uh, chat, Jessica. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. The pleasure was all mine, uh, Jessica. I would like to thank my guest, Jessica Reddy, for her time and her insights. This podcast was brought to you by Schroeders, and it is part of a knowledge session on ESG investing, where we look ahead to the 26th UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. Now, for more podcasts, please go to fondsnews.nl forward slash podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about Schroeders' climate vision and investment strategies, please visit schroeders.com. Thank you for listening, and until the next time. Important information. This information is a marketing communication. No responsibility can be accepted for errors of fact or opinion. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. The value of investments and the income from them may go down, as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested.
Exchange rate changes may cause the value of investments to fall as well as rise. Issued by Schroeder Investment Management Europe SA, 5, Rue Hohenhof, L 1736 Senegerberg, Luxembourg. Registration number B37.799.